Good evening, I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Uh, it's been a week or so since, since we've been live streaming, so it's good to be back. And oh boy, are we going to jump right into it with uh, one of our favorite targets, Epic, the leading health record, EHR, electronic health record company in the United States, multi-billion dollar private business. Um, the third richest woman is the founder and CEO, Judy Faulkner. And what happened last week was Judy wrote a letter to all of her clients, CEOs of all, all uh, well, not all, but many of the largest hospitals in the United States, saying that they should oppose upcoming regulation from the HHS, the Health and Human Services Department. Um, to make it easier for patients to get access to their health record information that's stored in the EHR, right? So now, hey, I'm an app. I can connect to the EHR. You can say, yes, uh, I approve this information to be stored or, or shared with this app. So the patient needs to give permission. Um, but what Judy is saying is that patients don't understand what they're giving up. The apps ask for much more information than, than they are needed to provide, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, um, here's the problem, Judy. You don't get to share an opinion on this anymore. Why don't you get to share an opinion? Because you've had years to figure this out yourself. You've had years to try and trailblaze a better solution. And all you have done is nothing because you're completely biased. And you don't want this to happen because you like the data silos and you like the data being locked up inside of Epic where hospitals have to pay you hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to install and then maintain your software because that's your business model. You are a SaaS company. You're not a platform company. You could have been a platform company. You could have been an unbelievably dominant and much more profitable, much more impactful business, but you didn't want to do it. You did not want to take the hard course of trying to evolve your business to become a platform, to figure out how to open up data, to embrace this thing called the cloud. Yeah, it's not that new. It's 2020. You didn't want to embrace the cloud like, oh, this company like Salesforce that has over a billion dollars in revenue coming from the rev share that they take from third-party apps that are built on top of the data stored inside of Salesforce. It's literally the same exact business model and business transformation. There is plenty of precedent to show you the road that you need to go down and arguably make a much more dominant business. Because now if you can make money on the apps, now you can justify subsidizing or lowering the cost of your actual SaaS software. Now you're going to actually have much higher, higher margin revenue coming from the app store. And I mean, the amount of applications both just in, in that 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 developers and startups and just innovators in the community can create to derive healthcare value. I mean, healthcare has been one of the most heavily regulated industries, has the most amount of fragmented information, and that's why I was on this panel in April of last year at the Milken Institute, which was, "Can the world's biggest companies disrupt healthcare?" And my answer was, "It better because it's the only hope that we got because the incumbents." are not taking it seriously upon themselves to change this industry for the better. The incumbents like the status quo. And I have a couple of clips that are going to show us discussing this in the past. So, Judy, you don't get to have an opinion. Your opinion is beyond biased. And now we're going to show some examples of, of why, well, A, your opinion is, 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 is inappropriate in the first place, and B, why your opinion is actually wrong. There's a great clip here. On Kramer. If I am a, uh, let's say, a leader like uh, uh, Jody, uh, Judy Faulkner, who uh, privately owns Epic, it would be a possibility if you had that interoperability, she believes it would compromise patients. I'd love to have her on, by the way, privacy. But at the same time, doesn't it just preserve her incumbency? Well, I've learned a long time ago to not question people's motives, but I can tell you we used to be in the business of hoarding our data. But what we realized is that patients were getting harmed because we were hoarding data. There's an example right near your home. Uh, 
a boy, 13-year-old Rory Staunton. He goes to the gym like we all did, falls in the gym, gets a little scratch on his elbow. His own bacteria from his skin gets inside his bloodstream. Now he goes home, feels bad, throwing up, feeling a leg ache. They take him to his physician and for a kid his size, his heart rate was really high. They still send that kid home thinking it could be a stomach flu or something bad he ate. He gets so bad his parents take him to the emergency department. They do blood draw. And unfortunately, his white blood cell count was really high. They still send him home. Now, a few hours later, that boy died. Now, imagine at that time, both the blood lab machines, the patient monitors that measured the heart rate, all were interoperable, all could share data. Algorithms could have seen, look, high white blood cell count, high heart rate for his size, that could mean sepsis. And they could have treated him for sepsis, and Rory would probably be alive here with us today. Do you think, Joe, that if people knew the trade-off that it might mean life or death, for them to not have any information themselves exposed personally, wouldn't they choose life? Absolutely. I know I would. What this is saying is, there is so much opportunity to put AI, to put all of the intelligence that we have and enable startups and other tech companies and other manufacturing companies to put that intelligence to work. And the blocker right now is that no one can build software that can get access to this data because it's all locked up inside of these EHRs like Epic and Cerner. And none of these EHRs clearly want to make that data readily available. And that is why we've covered Google Health's uh, expansion into this space and why we're very bullish on them and hopeful that they're successful, A, and B, uh, very optimistic that I think they're actually on the right path and, and going to be able to penetrate this. I think this move by Judy shows that the panic is real and the you know they're at defcon 5 here they're they're she you don't put this thing in writing and send this email out to all your hospital ceo clients and go on the record like this unless you are scared and unless you're really feeling the heat so she's feeling the heat actually i think this kind of shows weakness on her part so that means you're on the right track google and apple let's not forget apple's probably the one that really spurred this response from her because Apple's the one that we've covered here extensively. Their integration with Allscripts, which is a much smaller EHR than Epic, to have this integration. And now the, uh, the, the, the HHS department is throwing its weight behind this and trying to push this regulation forward around interoperability. Now, let, now let's talk about how why she doesn't deserve to be able to make this um, complaint, right? So Ben Thompson also wrote about this and he covers here the High Tech Act. Um, and the High High Tech Act is from the Obama era. This is years and years and years and years old. And in the High Tech Act, which helped Judy, by the way, he talks about, the this idea of interoperability was contemplated and, and laid out in this act, which is over five years old now. So. It's not like this thing is coming out of nowhere, this idea of interoperability. It's just that the act tried to get interoperability done. It just didn't expect how much resistance the incumbents would, would put up because they don't want the data to be unsiloed. They want it to be siloed. They want it inside of their systems, which means that their little kingdom is, is protected. Well, kingdom just got a big, it's not, the hole hasn't been poked through yet. But some of the bricks are starting to fall down from that wall and uh, and they're feeling it shake. So they're not too happy about this. We have covered this as well. Um, here, where we talk about why it's important to open up these medical records. These organizations, I, I think, should retract their statements and, and should really issue a solemn apology to the American public. And here's why. I bet if we analyzed who is actually funding these nonprofits, I bet a lot of money comes from 
the incumbent healthcare companies. I bet hospitals, I bet healthcare IT companies like the Epic and Cerner that we've spoken about at length on this show, um, pharma companies. It's all the status quo, people. I bet the CVSs of the world and the health insurance companies, um, they don't want disruption. They don't want tech monopolies to get access to health records because they know that that will be a nice wedge to blow up these walls that these incumbent companies have been able to build up around data and healthcare. And why this is so frustrating to me is because it's actually putting Americans' lives at stake. And not only is it increasing the cost of care, which is a huge problem in this country, but you're actually being a detriment to people's health care. You're actually causing people to get less care that they need. And, and, and this, this point should not be taken lightly, okay? These organizations are supposed to be here for the patients. This is their argument. They're basically saying that patients are stupid. And they don't understand what the large tech monopolies will do with their data. So what they want to do is say, oh, we need to create committees and we need to make sure that if the, the patient says, I approve for my health record to go into Apple HealthKit, right? So this is the patient giving their explicit permission. To give the health record into Apple Health, okay? These health uh, nonprofits are saying, well, no, 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 no. Consumers don't understand what they're getting themselves into because then the large tech companies could go and sell this data. And so we need to protect the consumer. Wake up, guys. It's 2019. You think every other day there isn't a story about Facebook and Google and now, you know, 50 states going after them for privacy violations. You think that consumers don't understand the, the implications of what happens if they give their data to Apple? We've been covering this a lot. Um, we'll continue to cover this. And it's needed because clearly the incumbents don't want to change. Um, and I think... As you start to break down these walls and we start to open up data, we're going to see a flood of opportunity. I think there are going to be so many new financings and funding rounds and follow-on funding rounds for tech startups in the healthcare space. I think this is a great time to be building a business in the tech space, in, in the health tech space, and making it, you want to make a bet that as, as, as data becomes more accessible from the EHR, what kind of business would you want to build around that? Now is the time to start. And I would, and, and if you're in that industry, I think you're in a great place. And I think you're going to start to see funding become much more accessible. I think you're going to see VCs be much more willing to invest in these kinds of businesses because this has been the big problem. I might be able to build a great product, but how do you get scale? You can't ever get access to the data. You have to go hospital system by hospital system to get the data. And just no startup can do that. You need a massive sales force and it takes months and quarters, sometimes years to negotiate these deals with the hospitals. I mean, what new tech startup can actually pull that off? It's extremely difficult. Um, so now, finally, we're starting to see some progress. This is the most progress I've seen so far. And it's because you actually have the incumbents going on record like this. This is a very, I think, risky political move. Uh, I think she's putting a lot on the line to do this and make it very black and white that she does not want this to happen. Um, and I'm sure she clout, she like shrouds this and says, oh, well, you know, there's a better path, a slower path. We need to be more measured in how we open up this data and more responsible. That is the excuse the whole industry has been using for decades about why they haven't opened up a shred of data. Right? It's all privacy, privacy, privacy. Well, here's something for you. I, I bet you China has already hacked 23andMe. I bet you China has probably hacked half of these hospitals already. They already got access to the data. The only ones that are getting harmed and all, the only people that can't actually get their data are the actual patients where it's their own data. But if you were a hacker, a big Chinese uh, or foreign government funded hacking, you know, state agency, and you want to get access to these data, I guarantee you can get access to these data records if you really want to get access to them. It's not Fort Knox. So um, the patients ultimately are the ones that lose with all of this, 
with all these games, really. So it's unfortunate. Um, okay. So last week, we made some predictions about... Um, this week, we had a number of earnings released from Platt. We had um, Amazon just came out today. We're going to talk about that. But we also had Apple. We had uh, Google. And we had um, Microsoft. And uh, we predicted that... Actually, we predicted them all correctly. Apple, Alibaba, Facebook, and Amazon all coming up in the first half of next week. This is right, right, right at the end of January. Um, I think in general, you know, it tends that these companies tend to beat earnings. You know, more often than not, they're able to beat earnings, especially when you have that platform monopoly power. You have a lot of ability to, again, take advantage of your suppliers and make sure that you beat your earnings or at least hit them. So it... More often than not, they hit. I think that um, I think that they should be all able to hit earnings. I think the question of how well they do um, after they release earnings comes down to a few different factors. So everyone's going to be looking at for Apple, for example, Apple TV Plus. Um, I don't. I am not too bullish on Apple TV Plus. I think Apple has. A lot of ability to force its users, or not force, but you know, pleasantly push um, its users to sign up for it, and it's free. So you might have a lot of folks that have signed up. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near where Disney uh, Disney Plus is, which we just covered. We think is now over forty million subscribers in about three months' time. Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus pretty much launched right around the same time. I don't think Apple TV's shows have been really doing as well uh, as, say, The Mandalorian, which is a massive hit. Baby Yoda fans know what I'm talking about. And um, now, that said, I don't think that that's the major driver for Apple. I think for for Apple, the trade news um, is a big boon to them, where now the, you know, the, the trade wars have kind of been put on pause, um, and hopefully the supply chains can settle down a little bit, and um, consumer tensions can can ease a little bit. I think you know, it's just Q4. So how many phones do they sell over the holidays? That's really going to be the major driver. By 2021, Apple, Tim Cook had made a commitment to have at least $50 billion in services revenue, um, of which Apple TV Plus is a small chunk of that. Generally, you know, on, on the Apple TV Plus front, I mean, they all beat earnings. So honestly, that one's not that hard to to predict. More often than not, these companies beat earnings. As I was talking about, it's more about the growth outlook and um, you know, what are, what do the future projections look like? So you can kind of look and say, oh yeah, they beat on revenue and they beat on earnings, but you could still fall depending upon the, the rest of the context and outlook that you provide. Apple did not release subscriber numbers, uh, which I find kind of bizarre. Um, you know, Tim Cook said, yeah, they're doing great, but then why don't you release the numbers? Um, I mean, it is a very small part of their business, so that's probably his reason, but feel like if there are blowout numbers, you'd probably want to say something about it, right? Um, so I'm still a little skeptical on how Apple TV Plus is doing. And I think they just brought someone on. I think there's some, they're making some like hiring, reshuffling. They're, they just brought someone on to join the team. So um, I wouldn't say it's all, it's all dandy on that front. Is that really going to make or break Apple's earnings? No. Uh, but I think it's an interesting point within the Netflix Disney stuff that we talk about. Facebook dropped. They beat earnings, but they dropped, for example. And they dropped because they have rising costs when it comes to uh, regulating their content and privacy. They had a $500 million privacy settlement and growth is slowing for Facebook. Um, so we have more on that that we're going to talk about uh, towards the end of the show. But um, that's what led to their drop. Um, who else? Amazon just released today and they have blown up um, in a good way. So they are up over 10% right now and um, they beat earnings by like 60%. Earnings per share was expected at basically four bucks a share. They came out at around 650 a share. They crushed earnings. Um, they beat on revenue and they beat on Amazon Web Services revenue. And they raised their guidance for Q1. Uh, so they upped where they think their revenue is going to be. So it was a pretty dominant 
quarter for them. And, you know, I would attribute a lot of these earnings, that massive earnings beat to advertising revenue. Um, their advertising business has just been on fire. And when you look at Alibaba, Alibaba's whole marketplace, product marketplace business is basically all advertising revenue driven. Alibaba doesn't take uh, transaction fees, or at least not for the most part. And they, they're not a reseller. They don't do their own uh, buying and reselling and stock holding like Amazon does, the one-piece sales. So um, Amazon's kind of putting both of these things together and, uh, and obviously have a lot of growth just in the core business in the core business of marketplace and AWS, not even to mention then, then you throw on top of that, the ad revenue growth, which I don't think people have really understood how to factor that in clearly. Um, so Amazon's crushing right now. Now, all of that, despite um, what this news was here, which the Trump administration is going to crack down on counterfeit and pirated e-commerce goods. So they urge companies to do more to vet third-party sellers and increase self-policing efforts. Foreign sellers face little risk of prosecution. So strong U.S. government action is necessary to fundamentally realign incentive structures. So they want to identify counterfeit goods and seek all available statutory authorities. Basically, you want to be able to, for example, so you know what's an example of this coming about? Um, it might have been direct, directly related to what we were covering last week um, with this poor guy, the CEO of PopSocket. God, it was horrible. I mean, it felt so bad for this guy. Here's a little recap. Amazon would just go make up the price that they would want to sell it for and bill his company <laughs> for the difference and say, oh, well, you know, we had to lower the price. So you owe us like a million, $1.2 million. They had a thousand listings a day that they identified as counterfeit for their inventory. They weren't taking this stuff down for a year and a half. Yet, when Amazon's trying to figure out who your manufacturer is, they are real quick to say, hey, I need that purchase order to make sure that this inventory is legit. We showed the live, the live clip here. We had enormous amounts of, of fake product. Uh, they were taking our sales, creating bad uh, customer experiences. And of course, it was illegal. So illegal activity on behalf of those selling them. And when Amazon was the seller, Amazon was clearly engaged in this illegal activity. And multiple times, we discovered that Amazon itself had sourced counterfeit product and was selling it alongside our own product. So not only did Amazon not take down the counterfeit listings that they notified them about, but Amazon was sourcing counterfeit goods as a one-piece reseller and selling it as if it was legitimate pop socket inventory. And it was fake. <laughs> I mean, you know, there should be some fines. There should be some penalties other than Amazon just saying, oh, well, uh, whoops. And, oh, we took the listings down now. It took them a year and a half to take down these counterfeit listings for the pop socket. I mean, they're literally saying a thousand listings a day are fake and they're notifying them and they don't do anything for a year and a half. So what are you going to do? Because they're the monopoly. So, again, this goes back to the same thing that we've been talking about, which is that platforms they take advantage of the supplier, who is a customer, but they take advantage of the supplier, not the end consumer. The end consumer says, hey, you, you sold me a fake pop socket. You get it refunded, no problem. Boom, here's, a, here's like two free ones. Because uh, Amazon knows this kind of stuff goes on and they have the leverage over the supply to handle this stuff on the back end. So they absolutely protect the end consumer. So... Uh, anyway, we've been covering this, and now it looks like the um, it's a Trump administration. Th I mean, it, it's not even it's not even clear what department is rolling this out. It kind of looks like, I mean, this is the Department of Homeland Security is talking about this, which and Peter Navarro, who's on the trade side. You know, I think this is like a Department of Commerce thing, maybe FTC. Um, but uh, interesting, juris jurisdiction wise, who's going to own this? But it looks like it's actually coming from White House that are driving this, which I think is a good thing. It's a good initiative because the FTC and the DOJ have failed to act from an antitrust standpoint to say that the platforms are taking advantage of suppliers. And so this is a band-aid. This is one action that you can take, which is, which is a byproduct of that, that kind of bullying. That's actually what the pop pop socket CEO literally said that Amazon's doing. They're bullies. 
Um, so this is one example of bullying. This is kind of, this is a band-aid. It's not solving the problem at the source, but it's one example byproduct of what happens when you have the leverage, you take advantage of the supplier, get these counterfeit goods. What's the real incentive for the platform to take it down right away, right? There's, okay, what happens if it's a day, a month, or a year? They're still going to get the, you know, even if the manufacturer leaves the marketplace, they still get the inventory from the other distributors or they source it directly or they just get the counterfeit stuff and say it's a real thing. So, I mean, kind of like any way the marketplace wins and the manufacturer loses. So this will, it's a small step in the right direction. Um, is it going to hurt Amazon's trillion dollar valuation? No, it's not going to do a darn thing to that. And it's nowhere near the Facebook stuff in terms of the amount of I mean, Amazon already has all the tools. I just think it's how diligently they enforce the tools and, and enforce these policies. I think they've just been very laissez-faire because guess what? It's in their own interest. So they're biased. Um, so anyway, we've spoken a lot about Netflix, Disney. And one other point I just wanted to throw into the conversation um, about Netflix, Disney and why I'm, why I'm skeptical of, of Netflix. Okay. Here's Disney. See the see this thing called PE ratio. So that's the price of the stock over the um it's the price of the stock over the, you know, value the kind of equity of of the business. So it's a good it's a good metric to understand what's the what's the multiple on the business, right? How much earnings do they have? It's uh their earnings uh, on the um, price over earnings. So what kind of multiple does the market give to their earnings? So this is 22, 22x, right? 22 times earnings. It's a healthy PE multiple. It's, it's, uh, it's strong. It's not super cheap. It's strong. This is Netflix. It's 84. This is exactly my point. It's almost 4X. So you're telling me that if Disney, which I think is releasing earnings next week, you're telling me that Disney, who got maybe half of the U.S. subscribers that Netflix has in three months, that's what we covered a couple weeks ago, granted it's a cheaper, it's maybe 60% of the price of Netflix, seven bucks, and there's some freebies, obviously, first year versus like 12 bucks a month or whatever it is for Netflix. Granted, it's cheaper. But you're telling me that they got almost half of the subscribers in the U.S. that Netflix has in three months. And that's Netflix's whole business. That's the whole business. And their P.E. multiple is almost four times that of Disney. Does that make any sense to you? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not saying Netflix is a bad business. I'm just saying it's overvalued. They came in in three months and got almost half their customers. Not the same. I mean, there's obviously overlap of customers, but from a penetration standpoint, I mean, there's no supply side network. network there's network effect. There's no defensibility in this business. Apple's not releasing their numbers. You got Comcast coming into the race. You got AT&T and HBO Max coming into the race. Probably a couple other people. You know, you got um, YouTube coming into the into the space now. YouTube is is now beefing up their original content. There's just an article here. Um, there is no supply side network effect. The business is very vulnerable, and I and they can they beat on earnings. By the way, Netflix beat on earnings. Their earnings was last week, but their stock went down. Why did their stock go down? Because Subscriber growth falls short in the U.S. They have continued to miss on subscriber growth in the United States. What they do is they make it up internationally. So they said, hey, we're going to get um, 600,000 new U.S. subscribers in Q4. They got 423,000. Okay, that's a pretty decent sized miss. Right? But then they said, well, we got 8.3 million subscribers overseas and, and they had projected to get 7 million. 
it just, it, it feels wonky to me. I don't know. It just, you're getting all these overseas customers. The competition is now coming into the U.S. You continue to miss your U.S. subscriber numbers. They're doing all these weird things on the balance sheet. Our buddy Ben loves, you know, he's still, he's still bullish on Netflix. But, you know, he talks about, oh, look at this. Look at this. This is their free cash flow. Does it, the fact that it's getting bigger and going farther down is not a good sign, people. <laughs> you you want to have positive free cash flow, not negative free cash flow. This is negative one over $1.6 billion in Q4 alone. Oh, but they're profitable. You know, it's wax on, it's it's wax on, wax off. Oh, they're profitable. How are they profitable? Well, because they are considering the content a long-term asset, which is going to be depreciated over a certain number of years. So they are burning more cash than they have coming in. Okay. But they're only taking a certain amount of that content that's been created as an expense on the P&L for 2019. That is how they are profitable. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, it's an industry thing. It's an industry standard. They're doing it. Um, I need to go and really analyze how long they are amortizing these costs and compare that to the rest of the people. If anyone has done that, let me know. Uh, That's going to be my next step of analysis on this. It just, you know, it's kind of like magic, right? I'm just going to throw it under the rug. What they had signaled to the markets was that their free cash flow would bottom out in 2018 and 2018 would be the same or better. But that is not the case. They are actually burning more cash in 2019 than in 2018. So they've now set the wrong expectation with the market. They're burning more cash than they had said they would. And the competition is just starting. I don't understand how they say that they're going to improve the the free cash flow when they have more competition rather than less competition. Does that make any sense to you? Like the only way that you reduce the negative free, I mean, it's the same riddle. So they're adding more subscribers. That's more revenue that's coming in. And then they, what are you going to do to 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 reduce your expenses? You're going to have to make less shows and less content. But now you have more competitors that are making a bunch more content and clearly can 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 compete on that level, Disney, and to a certain degree Apple. Um what gives? I don't know. I just mm-mm-mm. I don't see it. I I don't see it for the current PE multiple. It just seems expensive. Uh, very expensive. Well, we'll look at the amortization schedule and come back to you. I'm sure that'll have some interesting tidbits in there. So we've spoken in the past about news. So some people want me to call it canoes. Um, this is the News Corp, which owns the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones. Um, this is Rupert, Rupert Murdoch company, Murdoch family company. Um, this is their latest platform initiative. Now, if you remember, this is not the first time that the Murdochs have flirted with platform innovation. Remember they bought this company called MySpace? Yeah. Well, I don't know. What's your impression of this? Does this look pleasant to you? It kind of looks a little heavy on the yellow. I mean, I think they're going with the whole, they're literally going with the crime scene vibe. I mean, it looks like the, you know, the ticker tape that you put around a crime scene, but, and that's literally what they've got over here on the right hand, right hand uh, sidebars, crime scene. So I don't know. It just, it's a lot. It's a lot to get used to. Um, but look, I give them credit for trying something. We spoke a number of months ago when we kind of first heard about this initiative and we'd had some hesitations and here's what they were. If this works, then it's just a foothold for them to try other, I think much more exciting um, content platform models. 
um, <clears throat> where especially maybe they could use this to actually branch out into user generated content. Right. This is still all coming from, you know, actual kind of publications and news organizations. I think, I think they're definitely, uh, it's encouraging to see, you know, traditional media companies start to expand and start to try to figure out this platform approach. I think mm -hmm. it's uh, overdue. And I think, uh, you know, I definitely give credit to News Corp for trying. I think they're going to run into some challenges just based on the way this is set up. But if it, if it's, uh, you know, not the end result and part of an evolution for them and they keep moving forward on this, I think that's definitely a good start. So the challenges that we pointed out, this was from, when was this? This was uh, August 2019, were that there's nothing that new or innovative about it. It's a link aggregator, right? It's like Drudge Report. Uh, you got a bunch of articles, third-party articles. Some could be Wall Street journals, and but, but the majority of them presumably are not. Um, and we spoke on the show about some ways that they could, could try to innovate on the model, right? Like if you have a lot of paid, um, these, these walled garden um, media sites, if you're linking to a lot of articles that are behind these paywalls, could you have some kind of bundle subscription package uh, that now you are subscribing through news and it gives you access to all the articles that they're directly linking to through the site? You know, maybe. How could you kind of iterate on the business model a little bit rather than just be a link aggregator? Now, look, everyone needs to start somewhere. So um, power to them, as we discussed a number of months ago. This is a this is a great step in the right direction. You've got to try platform stuff out. I don't think this is a huge investment either to do this site. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? Um, so check it out. Let me know what you think of news. And... Is this a viable way forward for them? I think the interesting thing with this is this is a form of curation. That's really all it is, right? You're just curating links and, and curating interesting articles. And then you can, you can just reframe the, the header of the article. Drudge does it all the time. Drudge is a top five website in the United States. It's just a link aggregator. And I think there's literally five people that run the, run the site and the guy makes millions of dollars. It's a great business. It's a great business. Now, Facebook, this is what we were touching on, why Facebook was down after their earnings. So they had to do a settlement around, uh, around another privacy thing, and now they're putting in more costs to manage privacy, to manage content, abusive content. Facebook unveils details of its content oversight board. What they're saying is we're going to create an independent entity with a board, with an independent group of experts charged with the power to review and overturn decisions by the firm's army of content moderators, calling it an oversight board. This is a great step in the right direction. This is something that we've said should really be the role of some kind of pseudo-government entity. Um, this article talks about the role of ICON in the creation of the internet and kind of web domain registry, right? When you when you have a web domain, you need to register it with ICON. Um, the, that was a U.S. organization. Now, I think we spun it out into some like international uh, cohort of something. Um, but anyway, this is a step in the right direction. I think what it could be a part of is a much bigger trend. And one of the, th one of the graphics that we have in the book is our network effect ladder. And um, you'll see here this curation. Curation is a form of production. Okay, this is it's kind of how you can create value, um, particularly in, in content platforms. So um, you have different types of kind of value creation. We call it the five C's. Curation being one of those. And so I think we'll be able to see curation become a new form of produced value. So literally, what is Drudge Report? It's just curation. They're not actually literally creating articles. They're just curating. And that is value in and of itself. What is Facebook doing here? Well, they're, they're kind of letting someone else to rebut their curation practices. I think what would be really interesting to see is can you actually have a paid service 
I mean, now you're seeing news do this. I think it's free. But I'd be willing to bet that if you had trusted third parties on Facebook or, or different social media platforms that you could pay for them to curate your news. Everyone, you know, talking about fake news. Um, it's basically a new form of editor, right? And that editor is verifying what what information, what articles are true or not. And look, that's a there's a lot of gray matter in what is true, right? So there's some bias and some opinion that naturally goes into that decision, and that's fine. But if you were able to choose from a community of third-party editors and curators, and they're helping to um, bring a human touch to articles that, that they know are of interest to you, and you know you could obviously subscribe to people that um, or, or editors or channels that uh, share similar points of view as you or, or are, are of interest to you, and they're going to curate a special feed of articles around that theme or, or subject matter. They're going to help verify that those articles are true and valid. And you could pay for that. And I bet a lot of people would pay for that. Could be a buck a month, could be a buck a quarter. It doesn't need to be a lot of money if you have the scale of one of these platforms like a Facebook. Um, so news is kind of like the 1.0 aggregator curation. Uh, same thing as Drudge Report. You're seeing Facebook have its own blend of this where they do their own curation with algorithms. And now if they take a misstep on that, now they have an independent review. I think that's good in general. Um, that's one of the biggest gripes of these producers. And that's what we've spoken about is when, when the platform penalizes the producer. We talk about this with Uber. We talk about this with Amazon and Facebook. When the platform penalizes the producer, what recourse do they have to challenge that? This idea of an independent oversight board is not actually something that could be unique to Facebook. It could also be applicable to many of the other tech monopolies, to an Uber, to an Amazon, to all of the, maybe in some way to Google, certainly YouTube. Um, but what is the role of, of helping to protect producers? And this is something that Facebook is doing on its own volition. And people may say, oh, well, you know, they had to do it um, and, and try and take away from the fact that they've done this. And, and you know what? I, I generally would disregard that critique. I think you got to give credit to Facebook to do this, to take the initiative on this um, and put forward plans of its own because the government is failing to act. Facebook has asked the government to act and they continue to just basically do nothing. So uh, it's kind of unfortunate, but I think it's actually a great step in the right direction and a model that many other tech monopolies could look at doing and voluntarily doing. Because it'll actually like if, oh, for example, if Lyft did this, if Lyft did this, do you think that they would garner more support and credibility with their drivers? Absolutely. Absolutely. You would just engender much more trust from your drivers. So if you are a smaller uh, platform that is competing with a large tech monopoly, would you want to go do something like this and try and get out in front of that and engender more support from your supply, your producer base? That actually could be a pretty good thing for you to consider. So I really like where Facebook's going with this. And I think all, platform, all large platforms, all tech monopolies should really take note and, and consider this. I don't think that's that expensive compared to all the other costs they have to pay or the lawsuits or the regulate the threat of regulation. Um, okay, last topic is Penn National, which is a uh, big gambling entity, has put over a hundred million dollars into barstool sports. Um, I love barstool. I think their stuff is great, and they're now valued at four hundred fifty million dollars. Penn National put one hundred sixty three million dollars in in cash and stock. Now, we have spoken about how gambling is now now uh, online fantasy sport betting is is now becoming legal in many places, and there's a gold rush here. All these different gambling entities, they're doing mergers, they're doing roll-ups, tie-ups to go after this online fantasy sport gambling space. 
They're doing deals. We saw a deal with Yahoo um, a couple months ago that we covered um, with, I think that was MGM. And now you see Barstool and Penn National teaming up here. Basically, it's just a demand play. It's just saying, hey, Barstool has a lot of people that are watching sports and, and betting on sports. I think the Barstool folks also love to bet on sports themselves. And um, they talk about it a lot. And they have a very avid fan and, and, and audience. And I can guarantee you, it's going to now be very easy. There are going to be some nice little buttons on Barstool that say, hey, you want to place your bet? Go over to Penn National. Here you go. Um, Penn National has a variety of different sites that you know can help enable this. So um, this is a demand channel for Penn National, and it gives some nice capital to Barstool. It's a pretty straightforward tie-up. What we've spoken about in the past is the real play here, the real platform play here in gambling is the peer-to-peer fantasy sports betting dynamic. What customers want is the widest product catalog, the widest amount of bets, and the best pricing on the bets. And so all of these, all of these betting sites right now are what we would call linear. They are the bookie. They are using their balance sheet to do the betting, right? Which means that they have a spread and they got to cover both sides of that spread. Which means if you enable peer-to-peer betting and Kirk and I want to bet with each other and we both take either end of that bet, now we're just betting with one another and, and the spread the 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 margin the the bookie doesn't exist anymore there's no linear balance sheet involved in that bet anymore which means the net net fee and the net net payout the net net fee is less and the net net payout to either winner is actually much greater and the platform can take a cut of the earnings just like if you're playing online poker right and just whoever wins you pay a vig to the table same kind of idea but for fantasy sports betting so that has a winner-take-all dynamic because now that says whoever has more demand this is a prosumer dynamic, right? I'm a consumer, but I'm also a producer. I'm now, I can, I can set up bets. I can partake in bets. And so I'm bringing both demand and supply to the table, which means whoever can bring the largest pool of pr- prosumers to the table is by definition going to have the widest product catalog of bets, the widest variety of different peer-to-peer bets. And is going to be able to drive the best uh, and most volume and deals, which means they're going to have the most vibrant marketplace, which means you're going to have the best price. So I think you're going to be able to see a lot of players come into the online gambling space because it's linear. And it's just as like what we're seeing with Netflix and how you can have five startups in literally a span of 12 months come into your backyard and get half the customers that you have in the United States in three months what just happened with what disney just did to netflix that same dynamic is going to exist in the gam- online gambling space until someone figures out how to capture supply side network effects and the play there is to embrace peer-to-peer online fantasy sports betting so we'll see there are some startups that are doing this and they write to us all the time and so they see the future it's just a matter of when one of these big online gambling players also sees that and says, hey, you know what? We need to entertain a new business model. It does change the economics of it, right? It, it is it is a different business and you have to be careful about how you transform it. But I think with all the money that people are spending to capture demand, you need to try and find some defensibility, some lock-in, and that will come on the supply side of the equation. So that's where we're going to end it today. Thank you for joining us on Winner Take All. We will talk to you tomorrow which is going to be our last live stream from the New York office until March because we're going to be moving down to Florida. Actually, let me end on this note. I wish I'd brought this up sooner, but you know, I didn't want to kind of, everyone's been talking about it clearly, but um, you know, in my world, uh, Clay Christensen was a huge influence on me personally, father of disruptive innovation. And unfortunately we lost him on Friday. The guy was amazing. He um, you know, had had a number of health issues over the years to the point where he actually had to retrain himself how to speak English or just to speak in general because he had a stroke and he lost the ability to speak and then he had to retrain himself. Um all the while continuing to teach at Harvard and 
and do all these other great activities, built a great consulting business called Innocites, which was acquired. The guy's a legend. Wrote the book um, called The Innovator's Dilemma and a series of other books, which basically set the stage for this thing called disruptive innovation. Um, I'll tell you one quick story about Clay. So I was at a conference that he was speaking at, and it was interesting. He was saying the United States... Um, you know, the, the biggest threat, the, the two biggest threats to the United States um, are this. And, and, and you wouldn't have necessarily thought um, what they were. And, well, this one in particular struck me. And that was the decline in religion in the United States. And you say to yourself, hmm, okay, why is that the biggest threat? Like, why is that the biggest problem that we face? And what he said is, over the course of history, there are two ends of the spectrum in terms of how society governs itself. On one end of the spectrum is values, values-based, so basically kind of like self-governing, right? What is right, what is wrong. Um, on the other end of the spectrum is rules-based. And so what he goes on to explain is that if you look over the his or history, any society as they start to go from values over to rules-based, as you get closer and closer over to the rules end of the spectrum, so that'd be government and laws, it tends to not work out so well. You tend to see this thing called uprises and revolutions because people don't like to have the hammer brought down on them as aggressively. And you need to find somewhere in the middle. You need to find the balance. And so what he was saying is, how do you have... How do you go more in the direction of a values base and how do you help even out what we have been going closer to the rule side? So how do you go back to values? And what he was saying is that is actually the role of religion has played for centuries where it doesn't matter what religion you prescribe to. It doesn't matter if you even believe in God or not. It's just saying that a really good thing that religion is able to accomplish is it's able to establish a set of values that get taught and passed down to children at an early age in a, in a, you know, in a family or, a, you know, whatever environment that you're growing up in, religion's very good at prescribing a common set of values and, and the values slightly differ across the religions, but in general, you know, they're all somewhat talking about things that overlap with one another. It's helping you to establish what's right and wrong without having a law tell you what you can or cannot do. So anyway, what he was saying is there's a massive decline in the role of religion in the United States, and therefore we are accelerating towards a more rules-based type of society. And that was a very big problem that he identified. This was a few years ago, and I think that trend has probably only increased itself. Um, and it was a very interesting thought. I really love the way the guy thinks. and He'll be sorely missed and, um, you know, uh, um, we'll continue to try and highlight some of his, some of his work. Uh, as we remember him and and uh, and uh, appreciate all of the value and and uh, contributions he's made to the industry and and to this way of thinking, so we'll miss you, Clay. On that note, thank you very much for joining us, and we will talk to you tomorrow.